Welcome to you all. Uh, let's begin with prayer. Father, we're grateful that you have brought us together during this uh, second Thursday of our time thinking through the tradition, seeking to hear those voices that have gone before us who wrestled with your word uh, to come to grips with who you are, with who you've revealed yourself to be in your Son by the Spirit. And I pray tonight as we uh, study and sit at the feet of your great servant, Martin Luther, that you would help both those who are listening and the one who is teaching tonight um, to understand and to have modesty and humility before such a towering subject matter. And Lord, I pray that in some small way through your servant that we would have our own minds and hearts opened to the power of the gospel and the way in which that gospel shapes the way in which we go about reading the Bible. And Lord, if any of those things happen tonight, we know that it will be because of your kindness and because of your grace. And so we already give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome. And um, I'm sorry about last week. I know we had uh, the, that incredible weather that was coming through that was going to turn Alabama upside down. Um, and anyway, for those of you who didn't get the word, I'm, we apologize for that. Um, who, who needs a handout? Does everybody have, have a handout? I think there's a few people back here, Gil, who might need one. Um, if you walk into Beeson Divinity School Chapel, um, how many of you have been into the chapel at Beeson Divinity School? It it's makes quite an impression. No, we actually at Beeson, I've thought about this, I, I'm in my eighth year there now. You know, there's no real proper entrance to Beeson. Like if, you, if those of you who have been there, it's, it's an easy place to get lost in. There's no real sort of foyer. You're just in a hallway. Our only real entrance, proper entrance, is our chapel. Um, and so you come into the chapel. There's this big dome there that has what we lovingly refer to as the Sweet 16 in the uh, dome. These are 16 figures from the history of the church that look down on us um, with Jesus in the middle and a whole bunch of faces behind, which are the company of the of the, uh, of, of the saints in heaven, the, the cloud of witnesses, to use the language of Hebrews, and they look down on us. And, of course, Martin Luther is up there, right by John Calvin, right by Thomas Aquinas. I mean, there's not very many places where that'll happen, uh, but there, you know, Aquinas and Luther, happily situated next to one another. He, he would not, I don't think, would have liked that. Um, but there is something that I think, and I, 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 this will not be sufficiently nuanced tonight. It's just impossible because of the subject matter, and I think you realize that anyone who has really changed the tide of Western civilization the way in which Martin Luther has, um, forces on us to recognize that we're really just scratching the surface. Now, I feel that even more so. In some sense, frankly, not lecturing last week was a gift to me. It, it, didn't, it didn't alleviate anything. It just said, oh, well, now you got another week to do some more work. Um, and so there's something towering about Luther. Um, but there's also, I think, a kind of mis understanding that we often have. I'm not a historian. I don't want to claim to be that. I'm a, I'm a Bible guy. Um, I'm interested in these figures primarily because of how they help me read the Bible. Um, but, you know, I can hear historians, and I've got historians who are colleagues, who will warn about this kind of personalized approach to history that looks at individuals without locating them in a particular social context. The point I'm making with this is, if you come into our chapel, you, you would see um, those big figures up there, uh, Augustine, Aquinas, uh, Luther, Calvin, uh, John Bunyan, good, we got to have a Baptist up there, he's up there. Uh, Cranmer, sorry, yes, Cranmer's up there with his hand on fire, right? Um, you know, so they're, they're all up there. But if you look at the, the pictures that are around, that are meant to sort of walk you through the way in which the Old Testament, the announcement to Isaiah is on the right, if you're looking toward the, toward the, to the front. And then the announcement to Isaiah and the Old Testament's there. Then you come over to, the to Jesus being born and the baptism. And then you go to Pentecost. And then you go to Martin Luther tacking up the 95 Theses. I mean, that is a classic Protestant chapel right there, right? I mean, you go from Pentecost to Luther. I mean, that's, that's how it goes. And, and there's something which I think warms our hearts when we see that, right? But there's also, I think, something we, recognize, we all recognize. It's much more complicated than that. Luther is born in a particular time and place. As we're going to talk about a little bit tonight, he does counter the whole medieval tradition in its understanding of salvation in significant ways. So, I mean, we want to put that there. But 
there are a lot of predecessors to, 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 um, to Luther. Um, Luther was part of the nominalist tradition. He was trained in that particular school of thought, which was already standing over against Aristotle and Aquinas. Um, we're going to talk about that so don't get too nervous. Um, but the point is, uh, Luther didn't just fall out of the sky. But at the same time, there's something about the genius of Luther that forces on all of us a recognition that of all the figures of the Reformation, of all the magisterial formers, without a doubt, Martin Luther is the most towering. He is the towering figure. I just pulled off my shelf uh, last night Karl Barth's lectures from the early 20s on John Calvin. And he has in there a little section at the beginning given solely to Luther. And now you know, and I'm going to talk about this next week, and you might even know where my own predilections lie theologically. Um, but there is a kind of family feud, I guess is a, for a be, the better term, between the Reformed tradition, Calvin and the Reformed tradition, and the Lutheran tradition. There's some kind of a debate that goes on between one another. And, and Bart is definitely identified within, within the Reformed tradition, but this is what he said. I was fascinated to read this. But we can never those of us who identify ourselves within the Reformed tradition can never act as if Luther is not important because we must remember that both Calvin and Zwingli were disciples of Luther. They both were. They were not, um, they were not slavish disciples. They will go their own ways in significant matters in ways, by the way, where they can never actually meet at the middle. So they will go their own ways in significant, in significant points of doctrine, but let there be no bones about it. There would be no Calvin most, at least in hindsight, there would be no Zwingli, there'd be no Bootser, there'd be no Melanchthon, there'd be no Bullinger in, in Zurich if there were no uh, Martin Luther. He is a towering uh, figure. And then, uh, and I'd have to just toss this in there for, so that I can sleep one night. And then uh, Bart goes on to say, and let us also be mindful that we don't do within the Reformed tradition what those in the Lutheran tradition tend to do, and that is whenever they talk about Luther, they have to immediately say something negative about Calvin and Zwingli. Right? In other words, there's a danger even within the Reformed tradition today. Well, now I'm going to talk about Calvin, which means I need to say something negative about Luther. My sense is, and maybe this is because um, I have a little ecumenical streak in me, uh, I'm in the Anglican tradition now, um, that there's, a, a, there's too many points of contact within these great figures of the Reformation to focus on the polemic, though these guys were excellent at polemics. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as the night goes on. Now, I would love, tonight is technically not a night given to the life of Martin Luther. That's not that. Now, I can make suggestions to you for reading on that. Um, matter of fact, I'll just toss one out to you right now. Heiko Obermann's classic book entitled Martin Luther, Man Between God and the Devil. Um, published by Yale University Press. We'll get all this stuff out. Um, I'm probably on a bookshelf at, at, the, at the church. Um, but there are a lot of great biographies out there on, on Luther. We're not doing primarily biographical sketch, but you know the ba some of you know the basic structure of Luther. Born in a home, encouraged to be a lawyer, riding a horse run night, lightning strikes, he falls off of his horse, he cries out to St. Anne, and he says, if you save me, I'll become a monk, right? And then he became a monk. Makes his way into Erfurt, which is a university town there in kind of central Germany. Makes his way into Erfurt, joins the Augustinian monastery, and I had the great privilege with my family uh, last year, around this time actually last year, of sitting in that particular monastery in Erfurt where Luther was. Actually saw the place where he was ordained and where he lived. It's still there uh, in full to see. So Luther becomes a monk. This, this now is on your handout. Listen to what Luther said. It's an often quoted Quote from Luther, uh, page one. I was a good monk. I kept my order so strictly that I could say that if ever a monk could get to heaven through monastic discipline, another way that I've heard that translated is, if ever a monk could get to heaven through monkery, right, <laughs> I should have entered in. All my companions in the monastery who knew me would bear me out in this, for if it had gone on much longer... I would have martyred myself to death, what with vigils, prayers, readings, and other works. My conscience would never give me certainty, 
For those of you who had the privilege of hearing Gil Sunday morning speak about grace and depression, he talked about the law constantly accusing. Luther lived that out in an experiential way. It was constantly accusing. His conscience was never at ease. But I always doubted. And I always said, you did not perform that correctly. You were not contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. End quote. Here's a few other. Let's just read these together, and then we'll synthesize it all. He said, uh, as well in reflection, then, and this is referring to himself, God appears horrifyingly angry, and with him the whole creation. So not just God, but it's almost as if the whole world is in foment against me. There can be no flight. There can be no consolation, neither within nor without. All is accusation, end quote. Luther went on to say, reflecting autobiographically about his time as a monk there in the Augustinian monastery, uh, a fellow monk once said to Luther, never named, but he said, my son, God is not angry with you, but you seem to be angry with God. Right. I had the privilege, and I stumbled on this. I don't know if you do these sort of YouTube stumble onto something, and this happened to me. Probably should have been working. Um, and, uh, and I stumbled across a lecture by Graham Tomlin, who I had the privilege of, he was a colleague of mine at Wycliffe Hall for a year, Luther scholar as well. I th- has Graham ever been to Advent? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so I was listening to a lecture by Tomlin, uh, Graham on, on Martin Luther, and he phrased it in such a way that really grabbed me. He said, in effect, the Reformation was really born out of Luther's passionate pursuit to find a God that he could love. I mean, he was passionately pursuing a God that he could love because the God that he was finding that was handed over to him from the particular medieval tradition that he knew was not a God that he could love, but but that a God that was angry with him, always accusing him, always standing over against him. But he had a mentor. Again, Luther didn't just sort of fall onto this. He had friends, mentors. Johann von Staupitz. Um who was an Augustinian monk. He was uh, Luther's superior. Um, I, I don't know if I've ever actually seen this quoted, but there's this sort of uh, quote out there that Stalpage would say, you know, stop coming to confess all the... If you're going to sin, you know, go do something really serious and then come and talk to me about it. But not all these petty things, right? <laughs> and this is what Luther letter, later said about Johann von Stalpage, who was an Augustinian monk. He understood grace. He helped Luther sort of get a, a grasp on the gospel very early on. If I didn't pray, Stalpage, he said to his students in Wittenberg, I should be a damned, ungrateful, papistical ass. For he was my very first father in this teaching, and he bore me to Christ. If you look down at the bottom, and this is, this is Luther. We're going to see Luther's a polemicist, right? And if you look down there, ex Erasmus nihil habeo, right? Translation, from Erasmus, I have nothing. I have all my things from Dr. Staupitz. I mean, a little lesson, I don't want to go moralizing here on this story, but a little lesson on the importance of friendship in this journey of faith. The importance, I mean, I, again, I didn't plan on referring to you, Gil, but Gil's conversation Sunday morning has sort of settled with me. This notion of having conversations in our mind about the gospel being preached into our own lives. It's a gift of the community of faith, isn't it, to have friends who can speak the gospel, that promised word, into our lives. Luther had that. He wasn't sinking in the deep end alone. He had mentors, he had friends, he had those that, were, that cared about his soul. But then it all changed, right? Something drastic changed. And this is getting closer to, we're starting to circle in here. The massive change that began to take place for Luther in the 1510s and later on into, into that particular decade was in his exegesis of the Psalms early on. And what was it that, that stunned Luther when he engaged the psalms and the psalmists? What he found was these psalmists who relied wholly in hope in God's promises to them for the future, despite their current experiences. He found that in the Psalter. Here are these believers. Here are these men of faith and these men of faith who are dealing with deep existential crises from all the way from the womb to the tomb. They're facing crises. But what you find in the psalmist is a resolve to trust, to have faith, to have hope in God, despite the reality of their current experiences. And then he had his great breakthrough. 
in his lectures on the book of Romans, where he came to that Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of, of Christ. It's the power of God into salvation to everyone to believe, to the Jew first and to also the Greek. He talks about the righteousness of God being revealed from heaven, and this righteousness of God was not a retributive justice, God's ready to beat you down, but it was actually God's saving action. God's movement toward humanity to give them something that they did not have themselves. And all of a sudden, this Reformation foment begins to foam. Where? Precisely in the lecturing and the engagement of the Bible. And, and that, that was the great seizure on Luther. The seizure of the gospel begins to unleash. I wanted to read this to you. I hadn't read this before. Um, and my preparation for you on is kind of a long thing, so we'll have to hang in here together. But this is from uh, Luther's uh, meditation on Christ's passion. Hang with me. If you're, you might be like me. I don't like people reading to me. Um, but sorry. <clears throat> we say without hesitation, Luther says, that he who contemplates God's suffering for a day, he's talking about the passion here, for a day, for an hour, yes, only a quarter of an hour, does better than to fast a whole year. Pray a psalm daily. Yes, better than to hear 100 masses. The meditation changes man's being and almost like baptism gives him a new birth. Here, the passion of Christ performs its natural and noble work, strangling the old Adam and banishing all joy and delight and confidence which man could derive from other creatures, even as Christ was forsaken by all, even by God. So, so let, let's get that paragraph down. Well, what's Luther saying? To meditate and to reflect on Christ crucified does a kind of work on you and me as we reflect on it that seizes us, that grasps us, that terrifies us that God in Christ could be doing this on the cross. And the reflection on the reality of what is happening at Calvary, what is happening at Golgotha, is a better kind of spiritual, ascetic discipline than any kind of fast, any kind of mass, any kind of human effort to work your way upward. Because what are we doing when we look at the cross? We're seeing God work his way downward, right? And what is it that Luther's kicking in the knee, left and right, in the medieval tradition? Any kind of attempt to work your way upward. Because when you look at the cross, you see God come down. And when you see it, it's terrifying. It's overwhelming. You cast your sins from yourself and on to Christ when you firmly believe that his wounds and sufferings are your sins to be born and paid for by him. I mean, can you see this move? You see the, 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 the Christ on the cross. You see the horror and the suffering of Golgotha. And then you begin to recognize as you look onto this scene that what I'm seeing there, I'm not a distant observer. I'm an active participant. And the sins that are on him are actually mine. And the more your conscience torments you, the more tenaciously you must claim to them. What is them? The scriptures. Like Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have, he has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He became sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If, as was said before, now listen, this, this is so pastoral, and, and Luther is a pastor. If, as was said before, you cannot believe, you must entreat God for faith. This too rests entirely in the hands of God. However, now Luther is big on means, and we're going to talk about this tonight some as well. The word of God and the sacraments. It's a big deal. You would not come to Luther and ask him, I don't know what to, I'm lost spiritually. Um, I feel like I'm drowning. I'm in the dark night of the soul. I'm not really sure what to do. I think Luther very quickly would say three things. Number one, remember that you're baptized. You've been claimed. Number two, listen to the preaching of the word. And number three, do not divest yourself of a full sacramental life. Go to the table and go regularly. In other words, I don't think Luther would leave us in a kind of ambiguous, spiritual, amorphous thing. You know, go on a retreat somewhere, look at your belly button. And when you do that, you know, maybe something will happen. I don't think he would do that. 
He would say, God has given ordained means by which His Spirit communicates the grace of Christ to you. You've been baptized. Go to the table and listen to the Word of God. All right, we're going to come back to that. And if we don't, remember that. <laughs> However, you can spur yourself on to belief. First of all, you must no longer contemplate the suffering of Christ, for this has already done its work. It's terrified you. But pass beyond that and see his friendly heart and how this heart beats with such love for you that it impels him to bear with pain your conscience and your sin. Then your heart will be filled with love for him and the confidence of your faith will be strengthened. And now continue and rise beyond Christ's heart to God's heart And you will see that Christ would not have shown this love for you if God in his eternal love had not wanted this. For Christ's love for you is due to his obedience to God. So I look past Christ, and what do I see behind this suffering figure of Christ? I see the beating heart of Christ for his children, and I see the loving heart of God that sent his son to do this for me. Thus you will find the divine and kind paternal heart And as Christ says, you will be drawn to the Father through him. Then you will understand the words of Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We know God aright when we grasp him. Now this is a very interesting turn of phrase, I think, from Luther. We know God aright when we grasp him, not in his might or wisdom. For then he proves terrifying. But in his kindness and in his love. Then faith and confidence are able to exist, and then man is truly born anew in God. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, what is it here that that Luther is is, is portraying for us and pushing us toward? Is to recognize that when you come to the cross, when you see the Christ suffering for you there, that what you see is something that's actually organically involved with you, and it's terrifying. God is terrifying. And you think about it. The judgment of God, the holy terror of God, what, the, what some of the classic theologians call the mysterium tremendum, right? I mean, that great and terrible mystery that is God shakes us to our core. That is who God is. And where would Luther say do you find refuge from a God like that? You find refuge from a God like that in God. Not by running away from him, not by trying to work your way up to him, not by trying to appease him, you find, you find rescue from the wrath of God in God. As you look past the cross and you see the beating and loving heart of the Father, the smile of God for his people. Rock of ages cleft for me, right? Let me hide myself in thee. And that seized Luther, shaped the whole, his whole view on life, his whole view on ministry, his whole view on the church. He was a guardian. He was a gatekeeper of the gospel. And he viewed himself that way. He stood against the entire medieval tradition, according to Heiko Obermann, in its nominalist form, in its scotus, dun scotus, in its Thomistic strands. All of them saw justification as a goal to be obtained at the end of a purifying process in ourselves. Let me rephrase that. What is he standing against? This whole medieval notion. And there were different ways of construing it. Some were more Augustinian, more grace-shaped. Some were more nominalistically shaped that tend to put us turned in more on ourselves. But at the end of the day, all of them viewed justification as a process at the end of the road that happened in Nobis, inside of us. And what does Luther say? For Luther, justification is the stable basis and the uncertain goal of the life of sanctification. I mean, it's an important thing to say here that, frankly, and I was reading this in a a scholar named Robert Kolb, there is a future understanding of justification for for Luther, but it's something that's assured already because of the past reality of justification. And this is a a significant move for for Luther. All right, I'm going to skip that thing there on Luther's larger catechism that you have, although it's very good. As I've often said, that the confidence and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. right. Confidence, faith of the heart, both of those are what make either God or what make an idol. And we're putting faith and confidence in in something. Luther was a polemicist for the gospel. 
He was a defender of the gate. And one whose polemics against the enemies of the gospel was uninhibited. I don't know if you've read any of this guy, but he would make you blush, right? I mean, he would come in here and say things that would actually make us blush. Can I just give you, I'm not going to do that tonight, don't worry. But I do want to just give you a few titles of his pamphlets, right? And see if any of these would be in the sort of uh, um, uh, Advent bookstore. Pamphlet number one, Against the Papal Ass in Rome. Uh, pamphlet number two, Against the Incendiary Sophists of Lovan University. Number three, and this was against one of the electors of the day, Against Jack Sausage was the name of that one. And I was like, well, I don't even know what that is. There's some research on that. And apparently in the carnivals of the day, the goofy clown figure at the carnivals would wear a kind of leather sausage on his head. And so this is what he called, um, called the elector. He was Jack Sausage. <laughs> Listen to how Luther describes himself over against Philip Melanchthon, who was his, um, the one who took over after him. I was born to take the field and fight with the hordes and the devil. Therefore, my books are very stormy and warlike. I have to dig out the roots and the trunks. I have to cut down the thorns and the hedges. I've got to fill up the pools. I am the crude lumberjack who has to blaze a trail and prepare the way. But old Master Philip Melanchthon goes about quietly, building and planting, joyfully sowing and watering, as God has richly given him gifts to do." End quote. I mean, isn't it I'm just a bull. I'm a bull in a china shop. But Melanchthon, you know, invite him over for dinner. He'll be better dinner company than I will be. Um, but he was, he was a bull. Why? In a similar way, and Luther has comments to make on this with regard to himself and his commentary on the Galatians, but in a similar way that Paul stood face against Peter because Peter had forgotten the importance of the gospel and the way in which that shaped the way Peter engaged the Gentiles. And what does Paul say? And I stood against him to his face. Right? That's the kind of thing going on with Luther. This is the gospel that's at stake. And because the gospel is at stake, Luther doesn't mince words. He probably sometimes goes too far. There's a kind of sensibility that he doesn't retract very much at all. He's not really interested that much in dialogue. He's not. Why? Because the gospel had seized him, it shapes the whole world, and now it needs, to be, it needs to be protected and guarded. Well, bad news. That was introduction. Um, <clears throat> let's go on to the second point. Luther as a man of the word. Now, I have to say this. I mean, this is a, a candid moment with you all tonight. And I, since I know most of you, um, I don't mind doing being more candid. Um, I will be much more comfortable in the next two weeks with Calvin and Bart. I just be, I mean, I've spent more time with Calvin. I've spent more time with Karl Bart. Um, Luther is like entering into um, the Black Forest. I mean, there's just so much there. So I'll have to say that I feel myself like I'm on the front end of my hopefully lifelong engagement with uh, Martin Luther. Um, I have had the privilege of teaching a class on the Psalms at Beeson where we read through Luther's commentary on the Psalms. I've also had the privilege now of teaching a history of interpretation class where I've read through Luther on the minor prophets, and it's really quite rich. But I'm just sort of out of the gate. But I think you'll find this fascinating. I did 30 volumes of the 55, and this is Luther's lectures on the Galatians right here. Um, Chapters 1 to 4. Right, I was like, I know. That's how I feel the same way. Um, so that's, that's one volume of 55. That's what they look like, the American Works Edition, which is a translation of the, um, the Weimar edition, which is the German uh, uh, um, edition. 30 volumes of the 55 in the American Works Editions of Luther's writings are exegetical or sermonic engagement with the Bible. I, I actually think statistically that's very interesting. 30 out of 55 volumes are Luther's engagement with the Bible. I have a timeline of these, of Luther's exegetical output that was helpfully given to us in Gerald Bray's book on the history of interpretation. But look at this here. 1513 to 1515, he lectured on the Psalms. This was, this was when all hell was about to break loose. 1515 to 1516, he lectures on Romans. 
1517 to 1518, he's on Hebrews. Spends a year on the Magnificat. 1522, First Peter sermons. 1523, Second Peter sermons. And by the way, notice how much of this is in the 20s. And so much of the doctrinal content of the Reformation was worked out in this particular decade. It is significant to my mind to see that what Luther is doing in this time frame when he's wrestling out and hammering out the material content of Reformation doctrine is he's spending most of his time exegeting and reading the Bible. That's important. Uh, 1523, 2 Peter. 1523 also. Jude, some sermons. 1523, 1 Corinthians 7. 1523 to 1525, Deuteronomy. 1524, Hosea. 1524, Joel. And by the way, I've read some of these. They're rich. 1525, Amos, Obadiah, and Malachi. 1526, Ecclesiastes. 1527, 1 John. 1527 to 28, 1 Timothy, then Titus. And then Philemon, 1528, Isaiah, 1530-31, Song of Songs. I don't know if you had an opportunity to hear Timothy George speak at the, uh, the Lenten Lecture Series, but his first sermon, he talked about the Song of Solomon not necessarily being, you know, to our own disappointment, maybe 50 ways to a better sex life. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, he read it allegorically or figuratively, the way in which Luther, Calvin, really the whole tradition would have read Song of Solomon as God's engagement with his people. Um, Luther would have read it the same way. 1531, Galatians, which is what I have here. 1531 to 1545, the Psalms again. Which is, by the way, if you want to hop into his exegetical material, hop into the Psalms. They, they meant a lot to Luther. He thought the Psalms were the tote bag of the whole Bible. You can find all the doctrines of the Bible in compendium form in the Psalter. He loved the Psalms. 1532, Matthew 5 to 7, which is, you know is the Sermon on the Mount. 1534, 1 Corinthians 15. 1534 to 1535, some would say this is mo his most magisterial achievement, is his, his commentary on Genesis. And then 1543, 1 Samuel 23, 1 to 7. Is that not overwhelming? And I just want you to see what one of these volumes, again, looks like. Right, That's Galatians. Okay, And all of them are sort of true to form on that size. There's a lot of work done on it. There's a lot of thought given to the to exegesis. Luther gave most of his time to studying the word and preaching the word. Matter of fact, if we were to push Luther in a corner, he would not have understood this. This is a kind of a modern notion. In, in the modern theological education system, we have divided between practical theology, biblical studies, systematic theology, and church history. We kind of have these divisions here. If you'd have looked at someone like Calvin or Luther and said, which one of those are you? I think they'd have kind of looked at you cross-eyed like, well, what do you mean? I get, a ch I, I get to have a choice? <laughs> I mean, I'm, we're all of those things. But if we were to push Luther into a corner, we would see that Luther is primarily a doctor of Scripture. He was a doctor of the church. He was a Bible teacher at the end of the day. And not just a Bible teacher, if you look at this closely, he had a certain preference for a certain part of the Bible. I kind of like this myself, right? He, he, he was an Old Testament teacher. Right. This is fascinating. For Luther, said Obermann, I think this is in your handout, careful heed to the scriptures was the only scholarly basis for theology and thus the reliable standard of truth. If Luther was going to make an argument theologically, it was going to be done on the basis of a close reading of the words of the Bible as they witness to God's revelation of himself in Jesus. If he's going to make a theological point, it is going to flow off the back of an engagement with the biblical text itself. Not in a flight of fancy away from the biblical text, but in an engagement with the biblical text itself. And in that sense, as we talked about with the church fathers a few weeks ago, that's where theology is done. Not in a move away, but in a close attendance to the biblical text in light of its Trinitarian subject matter. All right, a few other things tonight. A third point here. How is God known? This is a big deal for Luther. Who is God? I mean, he was working with a particular conception of God within the medieval tradition. Well, who is God, and how is God to be known? Well, he's known in Jesus Christ as testified to in Holy Scripture. He says, first, one must become a student of the Holy Spirit and listen with care to his language. And, and let me just stop here and clarify this for a second. And I don't want to, don't, this is not meant to be discouraging, but I'll just just got to put it out there. And if we were to ask Luther, well, Luther, what language is that? Right. He would say Hebrew and Greek. That's the language that it is. In other words, for whatever providential reason it is, 
God gave us the Bible in Hebrew, and he gave us the Bible in Greek. And close attendance to the original languages drove Martin Luther's exegesis. He said in another context when he was making an argument for Christian education and theological education that the biblical languages are the sword, I'm sorry, are the sheath in which the sword of the Spirit rests. He, t- he took the biblical languages very seriously. And I've actually been somewhat surprised at this in reading Luther in, in his commentary on Micah and his commentary on Jonah and Habakkuk, how often he will say, Jerome, early church father, one of the early church Hebrew scholars, frankly, the, the translator of the Vulgate, the, the Hebrew Bible into Latin, he will say often, page after page, Jerome got it wrong here. He misunderstood the Hebrew here. Jerome got it wrong here. Or, and you know that the Septuagint was the Bible of the day during that time. The Greek translation of the Old Testament was really the, the standard text in a way, along with the Vulgate. But, but Luther really would always say at the end of the day, the Greek translation does not have a kind of determinative force for us. It's the Hebrew text itself. The Hebrew language is the means by which the Holy Spirit communicates his own triune identity. There's so much going on in that, but I've been fascinated to see for Luther... Learning the Holy Spirit's language means learning Greek and Hebrew. And you all can do that. Just come to Beeson, hang out. <laughs> I, mean, I tell my students, if you come learn Hebrew, it's going to be the language of heaven anyway. Um, it'll cut a few years off purgatory. Uh, you know, come on and might as well get it over with. So first one must become a student of the Holy Spirit and listen with care to his language. Despite all the differences between the old and the New Testaments between the evangelists Luke and John, between Paul and Peter, the Holy Scriptures are homogenous in that they testify to the God who is unknown to philosophers. Take that, Aristotle. That's what he's saying. Take that, medieval, Aristotelian, Thomas Aquinas tradition. Take it in the eye. What kind of God can it be who has to do battle against the devil, who suffers and is crucified. What philosopher left to the ingenuities of his own critical faculties is going to do his philosophical work, look at the observable natural world around them, make some sense of that, and then end up with crib and cross? Who's going to do that? Luther would say none of them would. The philosophers will not be able to work from the ground up to figure out in this kind of continuum between the natural world and God, to look around and be able to build our bladder up into God. Why? And you can flip the page here, the first point. Number one, God's hidden. The hiddenness of God. And this is from a Luther scholar, maybe one of the better Luther scholars living, Robert Kolb. He says, it refers to the aspects of God that lie beyond human grasp. In part... Because the sinful mind is no longer able to see God as he really is. And in part, because by definition, the creature simply cannot grasp the whole of the creator. What is it that, that Luther is saying here? Luther is saying here that God is hidden to us within our own critical resources. He's hidden to us. Why? Because of the, the effects of the fall on our mind. I mean, Luther had a very clear understanding that sin has infected and affected the entirety of what it means to be a person. Both our emoting, both our willing, and our knowing. Sin's infected and affected all of that. And because we are sin in sin, because we're in bondage, to use his bondage of the will language, we can't work our way up to God to figure out who God is. On that particular point of knowledge, Luther and Calvin are in complete agreement. We can't do that. God is hidden to us, that is, to our own critical resources. Which demands, then, that God would reveal himself, the revealed God. And where do we see God revealed? In the crib and at the cross. Listen to these quotes. But as God reveals himself in history, he is hiding himself from sinful reason by coming in forms that do not match the sinful imagination's projection of what the ultimate and absolute, the pinnacle of reality should act like and be like. It's a, it's a, it's, that's really an important insight there, I think. In other words, we all may be working with a certain kind of pre-idea, a preconception of what a lowercase g God is supposed to be like. I mean, God, and, and the philosophers had this, 
The Aristotelian tradition had this, what the ultimate actually is, the primary uh, mover, the first cause. God has to be like this. I assume that. And now I go to the Bible and try to make that assumed God fit into the pages that I find there. And Luther says that's not going to work. Because if we work with an assumed notion of what God is, we're going to have to squeeze incarnation in there in a way that doesn't fit really very harmoniously. How do we first and primarily define who God is? You go to a crib, you go to a cross, and you see God revealing himself in Jesus, making himself known in the language of John's gospel. Jesus is exegeting the Father to us. He's telling us who the Father is, and we're blown away by it because there's no philosophical tradition that could have moved toward that and said, here you go. We need God, we need God, and we needed God to speak that. We needed God to reveal himself to come to that kind of notion. And Luther is unyielding in his commitment to that primary theological understanding. Who is God? Well, whatever we're going to talk about God, we're going to start with Jesus and we'll move out from there. Whoever your conception of God is, you might as well just put that to the side. We're going to start with Jesus and we're going to go there. And really, our conceptions, our preconceptions, are going to eventually get blown away by what we find at the cross and what we find at the crib. Look what he says in this, this is Luther here. Begin your search with Christ and stay with him and cleave to him. And if your own thoughts and reason or another man's would lead you elsewhere, shut your eyes and say, I should and will know of no other God than Christ my Lord. End quote. I mean, isn't that great, right? It's, like, it's, it's almost as if Luther, I mean, this is, I live with little kids. It's like, la, 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 la. That's what he's doing, right? right? I'm not going to listen to that. I mean, that, because why? Why is he saying I'm not going to listen to that? Well, because sometimes it's so powerfully evocative and moving and, and, um, and, and interesting and enticing. Hey, I wouldn't mind a God like that, a God of my own making. Uh, you know, I, that sounds pretty good to me, actually. Um, and, yet, and yet here Luther is saying we don't get to do that. You don't get to project a God of your own making. You get the God who reveals himself. And where does he reveal himself? In the places that you would have never expected. In suffering in the cross. That had a huge interpretive significance for the way in which Martin Luther read the Bible. That's what kind of where we're going. That notion of the gospel, that notion of beginning with Christ, going along the way with Christ ending with Christ, making much of Christ, that shaped the way now in which Martin Luther read the Bible. Here's Martin Luther's interpretive center. Gave you the German there for a little fun. Was Christus tribet. What drives to Christ? Martin Luther said, and, and this is an interesting thing, by the way, because we've already seen, if you remember from our discussion with the church fathers, that all the way from the early church, it's been a pressing question. How do we read the Bible rightly? How do we know that we're reading it rightly? Remember Irenaeus? Well, we need the rule of faith. We need the, the instruction guide so that we put together the king and not the fox. We need that. Well, Luther has an interpretive guide as well, a regular fidei that flows from the early church and is shaped by the gospel. Whoever wants to read the Bible must make sure he is not wrong. For the scriptures can easily be stretched and guided. But no one should guide them according to his emotions. He should lead them to the well, that is, to the cross of Christ. Then he will certainly be right and cannot fail. I mean, that's a fascinating thing, isn't it? I mean, we tend to think, and, and I, you know, I, I, make my, um, I make my living... Uh, teaching, you know, the Bible, Hebrew, things like that. But I think it's very interesting that if we were to ask people like Augustine, we saw that in on Christian teaching last time we were together, or we were to ask someone like Anselm, or we were to ask um, Luther and Calvin or Thomas Cramer, who said this definitively in his little uh, homily on, on reading the Bible, how do we read it well? How do we guard from going into error? You know, our, our tendency on the far side of the modern project and the far side of our acute interest in history, which has yielded a great amounts of fruit, but our acute interest in history has led us, frankly, to an, an interpretive conclusion that says, well, if I want to read the Bible rightly, then I've got to, you know, become a historian. 
And all that stuff is helpful. I don't mean to downplay it at all. But you've got to become a historian. That's how you're going to understand the Bible rightly. Where I think Luther and Calvin and Bart that we'll see in a few weeks as well would say, all that's helpful. They make comments about that. Who was Nebuchadnezzar? What is a cow of Bashan? Well, who were the Assyrians? What was going on there? Where's Tarshish? Boy, boy Luther wrestles with that. Where's Tarshish? We don't know. It's probably Spain. So they wrestle with these kind of things. They don't think it's unimportant. But they would have never allowed those particular interpretive matters into the front seat of the interpretive car. It would have stayed in the back seat. But on the far side of modernity, we've allowed all that stuff into the front seat of the car in a kind of determinant void that they wouldn't have understood. Whereas if we asked them, well, then how do I read rightly Luther? Luther's answer would have been, well, if you start with Christ, and along the way, it's with Christ, and it ends in a Trinitarian way, then you must have done something right. That's the kind of interpretive conclusion. If Christology isn't just the ending point or the starting point, but it's the whole subject matter of what you're doing, not in a flat-footed way, not in a monotone way, but the way in which those particular words in the Bible, those particular given, inspired words in the Bible, how they shape your understanding of who God is in his revelation of his, in his son Jesus. I mentioned to you that we, we spent six months last year in Germany, which was a great gift that God gave to our family and, and, and that's sabbatical from the Divinity School. And, and we went on this trip to Wittenberg. Now, we actually did this whole Luther tour together. Um, and I'd love to just, I probably should have brought slides to show you. We went to Wartburg Castle in Eisenach. Who's done all this stuff? You've done on this I walk where Luther walk thing. Um, we need to do that. We'll do Advent. Reformation tour, Germany. No. Okay, so, so you know, you, you, you go to Wartburg Castle where, where Frederick the Wise hid um, Luther out because he, there was a bounty on his head for 10 months in a, uh, in a little cell all by himself. That's where he translated the Bible into, into uh, the, New the New Testament in 10 months. I mean, it's a kind of amazing achievement. Um, we actually were in Eisenach. You have to walk up this interminable hill to get to the castle at the top. Of, top. We got there at 410, and the guy looked at us and he said, sorry, you're 10 minutes late. The music, it all closed 10 minutes ago. And I'm like, if Luther were here, he'd be swearing right now. Um, well, I said, you know, I'm not really interested in the castle, but we would love to see his chamber. What can you do for us? The guy said, let me make a phone call. So he made a phone call. And he marched just straight up there. It was just great. I mean, there's the room, the fabled encounter where, you know, Luther threw the inkwell at the devil. You know, it was all in this room. And there's nothing in there that's original to his time, except for the walls, of course, and a big whalebone vertebrae there. And that was his footstool that he did, right? So, so you that saw that is incredible. We went to Erfurt, went to the monastery, went to the big uh, church there where he lectured to students in, there in, in Erfurt. But then the sort of pinnacle was going to Wittenberg to the Schloss Kirche, where, where he tacked up the 95 Thesis, where he's buried in that church, along with um, uh, Philip Melanchthon and Frederick the Wise. It was a great experience. We got to sing A Mighty Fortress is Our God there, and you know, it, was, it was lovely. Um, and all that was cool. But what was really special for me, the Luther House, which is an incredible exhibit, where the table talked, all that's there. But it wasn't the Stadtkirche, I mean the Schloss Kirche, it was the city church, St. Mary's. That's old, kind of beaten, run down. It's original to the time. Even the edifice is, is original to the time. And you just sort of, I mean, Wittenberg's a small uh, a German city. Um, we were there in a not especially touristy time. And you just sort of walk in, you know, into the church. And there's a lady there, and no one's really around. It's just me and my family. And, and this is where Luther did all of his preaching. This was, this was the place. And so being there was really special. You went up and you walked into the, into the, into the nave. Sorry, into the cloister. Um, oh, sorry, my, my sub, chancel, right? And you saw the uh, the, um, the the uh, the tombstone for his ten-month-old uh, daughter Elizabeth, who died. Still there, really grieved uh, Luther deeply. Still there. The pulpit is original to the time. But the thing that grabbed me was the altarpiece by Lucas Cranach, the Elder, who was Luther's dear friend, and he was the great artist of the Reformation. And you're sitting there and you're looking at this massive altarpiece and you're going, why aren't there guards around? That's what I thought. Like, well, there's no guards around. It's just here. I can take this now. I mean, I couldn't, but I mean, there it is. And, and you see this triptych and there's a scene of the Last Supper. 
And when you look at the Last Supper, there are two figures who are looking out at you, and it's Martin Luther and Lucas Cronach, the elder. Which seems strangely anachronistic, but if you know Luther's Eucharistic theology, it's really not all that anachronistic. It makes sense. But there he is. But then underneath it was this picture, and I brought it tonight. Right. Can you see this? <laughs> I, I bought this there at the end. Um, I don't know if you can see it. I'll, I'll kind of move it around. That was on the front page of our Linton brochure last year. Was it? Uh-huh. Man, I'm always behind the curve on this. <laughs> so you see this picture? I, I could, and it's huge. I mean, I would say that picture there, sort of in real life, is between these two bookcases, kind of thing. It's massive. Um, and so you, I, I stood there, and, and I was, I was seized by it, because I thought, there's Luther's hermeneutic in picture form, right? So. Here he is in the pulpit, Bible's open, and there are the people out. And notice not only where Luther is pointing, but where the people are looking. That's really something powerful too, isn't it? Luther is pointing to Christ. His preaching of the Bible is pointing to Christ crucified. And the people aren't looking to the great reformer. They're looking to Christ. That's his hermeneutic on display. I'll leave it up there. You guys can come take a peek at it. What pressures Christ? What leads to Christ? Why was that his hermeneutical center? Because that's who God is. Do you see the way in which theology and theological commitments inform the way in which one reads the Bible and what one expects the Bible to be? What this thing actually is? God is Jesus revealed. That is God the Father revealing the Son by the Spirit. He's triune. And because that is who God is, Colossians 1, and, before, and because he proceeds all things, the Logos preceded the Old Testament. I mean, because that's true about God's eternal identity, well, then that means that we are pressured in our given moment in time and space on the far side of the cross and the resurrection to read the whole of the Bible as a witness to that one God who's revealed himself to us in Jesus. Now, how that works itself out on the ground is worth a lot of discussion. But I think as far as a general hermeneutical or interpretive principle, Luther read the Bible in a Trinitarian way by a close attendance to the words that are there in the Bible. All right, a few more things. I I, I see the time. We're pressing. Fourth gear. Luther and the Bible's dynamic character. Luther believed that he and his hearers, and this is interesting looking at these hearers here, breathed the same air as the air that was breathed in the events attested to in Holy Scripture. They lived in the world of the Bible. And thus the text had an immediate character for the hearers. In other words, to put it in other terms, there wasn't a lot of preaching white noise you know, between the Bible and those who were sitting there listening to it. There wasn't a lot of interpretive interference in the movement from, this is what the Bible says, and this is how this edifies and exhorts and challenges you in both a word of promise and a word of command. It comes to you as promise in the gospel, and it comes to you as command. Those are terms that Luther valued. In other words, there wasn't a lot of white noise there, but the Bible was immediately applicable, and not in a kind of, I mean, you're not going to hear Luther talking about how the Bible is going to help you balance your checkbook. It's not that kind of application. But it's immediately applicable to the hearers. Why? Because the Christ that's witnessed to in the Bible is alive in our midst, in the Word and in the sacrament. When the Word is preached, the Second Helvetic Confession says, when the Word is preached, it actually is the Word of God. When the Word of God is preached faithfully, it actually is the Word of God. And who is the Word of God other than Jesus the Christ? It is Christ mediated to us in the Word. It is Christ mediated to us in the sacraments, Word and sacrament. So there's a dynamic character. God speaks. God has spoken, and God is speaking. This is the importance of the Word and the promise, even over against our own experiences and rationality. That taps into, again, to the good word we heard Sunday morning from Gil. Even in our own dark nights of the soul, even in our own difficult experiences, even when, as my six-year-old son is saying to me this week, you, some of you who've gone through this help me because I don't know what to do. Um, I'm just not sure about this stuff, Dad. All right? I don't know. 
I said, Jackson, you look a little bit down, son. What's wrong? He said, I'm not sure I believe. I was like, oh, crap. He's like, what, what, you know, what, are, you know, what are we going to do now, right? Um, and this is the good word from Luther, isn't it? That even in those moments of real doubt, real angst, real spiritual crisis, what, what Luther called the ongoing reality on, of anfektungen, right? Of trial and temptation, of despair, that even when that is occurring, to believe the promise, to believe the word, to see the smiling face behind the cross toward his people, even when you don't feel like it. What a good word for you and for me. What a good word for little Jackson. <laughs> Last, uh, two more things. Luther's practical understanding of the Bible's role. The Bible, along with the sacraments, is the primary aid in our continued life of repentance. You may have heard Andrew uh, Pearson mentioned this in a sermon, I can't remember when, but where he said that for Martin Luther, he understood the whole of the Christian life as a life of repentance. It's well said. The 95 Theses that you're so familiar with, 1518, I believe, October 31st, Reformation Day, begins with the whole life of the Christian is a life of repentance. Listen to what Luther's smaller catechism says about baptism and why, by the way, whenever you see baptism services at church, you know, it's maybe a good reminder for you and for me not to go, ugh. Right. Yeah, right. But to recognize, you know what? I need to be reminded about the significance of my baptism. It was really important to Luther. What does such baptizing with water signify? Answer. It signifies that the old man, old Adam in us together with all sins and evil lusts, should be drowned by daily sorrow and repentance and be put to death, and that the new man should come forth daily and rise up, cleansed and righteous, to live forever in God's presence. That pattern of dying and rising that was set out by Paul in Romans 6, or in the language of the Puritans, or in the Reformed tradition, mortification and vivification, putting to death and being made alive, is aided by attendance to the word of God preached that comes to us as promise and command or that comes to us as law or gospel. Sin continues to beset the believer. This was, you know, these are the Advent church mugs, right? The great simile, Eustace et peccator. I mean, we are completely, to use other Latin terms that I think are helpful here, totus totus. Completely. We're not like half sinner, half righteous. It's totus totus. Completely sinner and completely righteous. And the reality of that particular tension besets the Christian. And it's why, and this is what I, what I think is one of, of, of Luther's great insights, and as much as it pains me to say this, maybe even over against the way in which Calvin tends to present things. But one of Luther's great insights is the importance of the gospel coming to us again and again. Not necessarily an ever-growing ascendancy as we look at ourselves in the mirror and go, you know what, I think I'm getting a little better. <laughs> no, the gospel comes to it. Matter of fact, Luther was funny about that. He said, whenever you feel that way, look in the mirror, you might feel some donkey ears coming down on you when you start feeling that way, whenever you start to get a little get haughty. Why? Because the gospel comes to us again and again as a word of promise and as a word of as a word of command. Well, three notable points. I had a lot I wanted to say on this, but I'll just quickly give them to you. Three notable points for Luther's biblical interpretation. Number one, law gospel. The law has come to its end in Christ, it no longer accuses. Now, this is Luther saying this. When I have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, the grace of God which Christ has bestowed on me because I believe in him makes the first commandment a pleasure for me, end quote. And words, the law doesn't accuse anymore. It can't do that to me. But because it doesn't accuse, it doesn't mean it doesn't have a commanding role, an ongoing role. This is a real debate among Lutherans, by the way. But not, not for Luther. I mean, and Luther in the Formula of Concord had a very clear understanding of the way in which the commands still work. Not in any accusatory way. They can't do that. Jesus is on the cross for you. But that's why they're a delight now. 
He also talks about, there's more I wanted to say there, he talks about two kinds of righteousness, an alien righteousness and a proper righteousness. That alien righteousness is that right there, the pointing away, to look at what Christ has done for you. That's your fundamental and core identity right there. That's who you are. Well, I don't steal my thunder from my Bart lecture, but apparently some hot-blooded evangelical um, accosted Bart at one time and said, can you tell me when you got saved? And I read this in the Eberhard Bush biography, and, uh, and Bart said, well, I believe I got saved somewhere around A.D. 32, 33, um, outside of a hill in Calvary, right? That, that's when it happened for me. I don't know what happened for you. An alien righteousness, and then a proper righteousness. A righteousness that then comes to us as um, God guiding us and showing us how to live a life of righteousness that corresponds with the righteousness that is alien to us. Those are Luther's categories. And then the third one is the two kingdoms. All of these are hotly contested. And I'm kind of glad we don't have more time for them. Um, they're hotly contested matters, they're difficult matters, and they're points of continued discussion and, and a disagreement. But I think the larger point to take away from tonight is to recognize what was it that shaped Luther's reading of the Bible? What shaped Luther's reading of the Bible from Genesis all the way to the end was a recognition that God had revealed himself to us because he was hidden. We couldn't make God up in our own minds the way in which he actually is. We'll have an alien God at that point, a lowercase g God. But God has stooped to reveal himself to us in human language, in the words of the Old and the New Testaments, as they point away from themselves to Jesus Christ crucified. That, was, that drove Luther's hermeneutic. It drove the way in which he read the Bible, and it shaped the whole of the theology of the Reformation. All right, I was told to stop at 8. Um, you want to fire some questions around and maybe, maybe uh, see if we can get some clarity? While you think about questions, um, again, a few resources for you if you're interested. Um, all the, well, you, know, you don't need them. I gave you footnotes actually here. Um, all of those are worth, are worth pursuing. Um, if you want to press a little further, it's, it's not an easy read, but if you want to press a little further, there's a book by Stephen Osmond. Um, that's out with Yale University Press called The Age of Reform, 1250 to 1550, to kind of get Luther situated within the medieval period. The whole Reformation situated within a medieval context. We do tend to think, I, 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 well, maybe you all don't, I tended to think for a long time it was like Paul, Augustine, Luther. It was like those guys, you know, but it's much more complicated than that, much more textured than that, and frankly, much more interesting than that. Um, so I, I would commend that to Steve Osmond's work to you. Don. What would a thoughtful, um, open, but staunchly Catholic Christian say today with perspective of, of history on Luther? Oh, I'm, this is beyond my pay grade. <laughs> um, one of the things, again, you know, you, you know, most of you know my background. You know, I was trained in a reform seminary. Um, you know, we, tend, I, we tended to treat Roman Catholicism as a one-size-fits-all, and if anything that I've learned um, in the past few years is that, that that is not a self-evident sort of thing. So in some sense it would depend on, well, what kind of Roman Catholic are we talking to? Um, did, did Benedict, Adam, do you remember this? Did, did Benedict beatify Luther? I thought there was something that happened several years back where Something it was strange. I'm, I'm, I need to be careful of that. I, I, don't, I think the answer to that would be um, it's complicated, and the reason why, yeah, and, and the reason why is um, what makes it difficult is the way in which, for example, the Council of Trent, which is official ecclesial dogma, how that continues to inform the life of, which was a polemical document, how that informs the Catholic Church now post-Vatican II. I mean, it's a very sort of textured thing. Um, there's been a lot of there's a lot of dialogue that's going on right now. Um, there's even been a lot of movement on issues like justification. It's always the word alone that gets people kind of you know buggy. Um, but I you know I don't I don't see personally I don't see any nearness in the future of uh, communing with Roman Catholics. I just don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Um, but I do think that they would probably recognize that there's a little bit of naivete 
inter interpretively speaking, from a reformational standpoint to say, okay, so it's just you and one sole man in the Bible standing against the great magisterial interpretive tradition of the church. Yeah, right. I mean, I think there's probably some of that at play. Um, so wrestling with that, I think, you know, demands a certain kind of work um, because we now see the sort of spawn off of that in sort of multiple denominations, what we might call the, the, the democratization even of American religion. Um, it's, I think it's a sort of complex thing. Um, the clergy at Advent and I are reading through this book together by Ephraim Radner called A Brutal Unity. Um, it's a very difficult book, but um, he's tapping into that particular issue right there, Don. And so as far as, you know, what do we do now where you have someone like Erasmus and Luther debating hermeneutics? How do we now understand that in the light of a broken church, a fissured church? And these are these are large ecumenical theological questions that are on us. And I do not believe in a least common denominator kind of ecumenism. In other words, let's just sort of shed our doctrinal commitments and have, I don't know, a potluck together. I'm just not interested in that. Um, but I do think those kind of hard conversations need to be heard. And I do think intellectual virtue, let's just call it Christi being a Christian, demands that we really hear our opponents well before we break into polemic. And I think in my own past, I've tended to lead with mouth and then think about it later. And, and I think, you know, there's something beholden on us to think hard about and know well what it is we're actually critiquing. And I'm not sure I'm at that point where I can do that fairly in that particular question. I read something recently about Luther late in life that gave me great pause, and I wondered if it was true, and that is that he got to be much of an anti-Semite and wrote strongly about that, and that was later picked up by the church in Nazi Germany. Have you ever heard that? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, there's an underbelly there, for sure, uh, and not to, be, um, uh, not to be shied away from. I will say that Obermann's book on Luther probably gives the best nuanced account of that. In other words, we all have a kind of knee-jerk to that. Um, and, and I can't remember the complete details of his nuanced argument, but part of the thing that I think we have to recognize is Luther, I think, really believed, and this is my understanding of this, and it's quite facile, but Luther believed that once the gospel was unleashed like it was in the Reformation, that the Jews would come in in droves. And it didn't happen. And when it didn't happen, I think it began to harden him. Luther had, and there's a lot of interesting scholarship being done right now about the way in which different reformers will appeal to rabbinic interpretation of the Bible. Even Lutherans who would, would appeal to various rabbis to help them adjudicate biblical problems, Luther would have none of that. Matter of fact, in the translation committee that happened on, on the German Old Testament, Luther is quoted as saying, you know, I came in with my, or someone says something like, I came in with my Greek and my Hebrew, and then all my friends came in with their favorite rabbis. Uh, and, um, I mean, Luther just wasn't, so there, there's a, there's a, there is an anti-Semitic side that happened, or at least we might say an anti-Judaism that became very um, palpable. And again, it's beyond my pay grade on that particular matter, but I would say um, that Heiko Oberon probably has the best account of that. How that was picked up in Nazi Germany, I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise one. I think to see National Socialism tapping into their German identity as saying anti-Semitism is part of what it means for us to be national Germans. Because, and this is another great um, insight from uh, Obermann, the Reformation probably wouldn't have happened without Germany. I mean, the importance of, of, of the particularity of Germany at that moment um, was important providentially for the Reformation to occur. So, the, so Luther is at the core of, of, of um, a sort of German identity. And he's everywhere there. Big, big statues of Luther around. So it's a problem. It's a real problem. And whenever I, my Lutheran colleagues hate it when I bring it up. You know, it's 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 it's, it's hard to run away from it. Yeah. Luther said in table talks, "As I drank this little glass of Wittenberg beer, the gospel runs its course." Remember that? <laughs> 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 that would be a great way to end it. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Let's go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. Thank Thanks be to God. God.